Yes, hello again, everyone. Welcome back to None But the Brave, a part of Evergreen Podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy, Flynn McLean. And as we record this episode tonight, it's January 11th. Today would have been Clarence's 80th birthday, and we just really want to take a moment to say that we remember him. He he was such a powerful force in my life, and I know in Flynn's life, and I and I imagine that anyone who's hearing my voice feels the same way. Clarence was just an amazing guy, an amazing musician. Yeah, he was. Uh, he was big in, in every every sense of the word, and big smile, big personality, and and of course the the big sound of the saxophone just became such a such a huge part of, of Bruce's signature sound, and so big. <laughs> it's so true, and and you think of some of the performances. Of course, the first one that's going to jump to mind is any performance of Jungle Land. But just the the force that that man was on a concert stage and, and and what he meant symbolically to the fans, he really was, other than Bruce, the face of the E Street Band. Of course, the two of them were on the cover of Born to Run, the most significant album of Bruce's career, and one of probably the most widely viewed covers in the history of rock and roll. <laughs> yeah, that's, a good, that's a good way of, of putting it. And Clarence was certainly, well... I mean, I'm th- I think back to that to the story in the uh, in, in the Carlin book about how if uh, Bruce could fire anyone in the band and have a replacement within within 24 hours, except maybe Clarence, and that certainly was the case. And even even in the uh, even in the last few years of, of Clarence's life, Clarence's touring touring life with with Bruce, he may not have may have lost a step or two, but the the aura around him never never decreased he was as you said he was a force on stage even if he was just just sitting on on, on his stool and he, during the during those uh the last few shows in 2009 there was a spotlight on clarence whether it was it, it may not have been visible but it was certainly there especially that that last night in buffalo where they re- recreated that born to run album album cover shot and that was always uh, such a beautiful moment yeah, and to take nothing away from Jake, who's done a great job, I'm sure Jake would be the first to admit there is no replacing Clarence Clemens. So, no, it took a whole, took a horn section, took five guys to replace Clarence on the next tour. <laughs> so, so we uh, we just wanted to say, Clarence, we remember you and we miss you. Yes, yes, we do. Another thing we need to discuss tonight, and this was a bit of a shocker on. Not really. Well, it depends how you want to view it, but New Year's Eve, I got a call early in the morning with some news. I called you. I said, I just got a call and supposedly the tour is off. I I, I was a bit in shock and you then checked it out and said, I just heard the same thing. And then we went through the weekend and people came back to work in the new year. and, And sure enough, there were reports both from people we had heard from and in the media Unfortunately, it appears that tour 2022 for Bruce Knee Street Band is off. By all accounts, they have canceled the European dates that they had in place, which were going to begin in Barcelona. And also, they have apparently released the holds they had for the United States. Uh, we can say that the U.S. tour was going to begin in Foxborough on August 2nd. And it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a real, real bummer and understanding with what's going on very very hard certainly i think to tour in europe right now and cross all those borders but just 
so much a bummer and we all just want Bruce and the band to be back on the stage and we may have to wait a little bit longer. Well, we, we want them on that stage, but we also want them to be healthy. Um, you know, I think we all wanted it just because of these, the last two years have been so, have been so difficult uh, for a lot of people and we wanted to see them up there, but it's just, we're just not quite there yet with our, with the dealing with the, with the pandemic. And, it's one thing that we talked about, uh, you know, events are happening, baseball games, football games. And and the reality is, is that, you know, they're going to go on. They're, there are backup quarterbacks. There are backup running backs. There are backup shortstops and minor leagues full of starting pitchers. But um, there's no backup for Bruce. There's no backup no. for Roy or, or Max or anybody. So, you know, they couldn't they couldn't risk one of them getting sick and having to. You know, I mean, obviously we want them to be healthy, but at the same time, the shows would get canceled if in, in that situation. You can't just bring up the, you can't bring up a guitar tech or a drum tech and say this is the legendary E Street band because at that point it would not be. Here, as we've discussed off air, in the entertainment industry, one of the things that's going on, and, and I'm dealing with this on a daily basis because I have a film that should have been shot already, there's regular testing going on. And one of the things you're seeing is we've seen it on Broadway. We, we're seeing it on a lot of TV and film productions. We're seeing it in some of the sports leagues. If you test people regularly, and that is what's happening on all of these entertainment productions, that positives are going to be there and there's going to be shutdowns. So what Bruce was really had to be looking at here is that you go off to Europe I, I assume there would be a testing regimen on on our productions. There has to be something called a COVID compliance officer. I believe the same position is being filled on most of the contra tours and the tests are administered. And as they come back at a certain threshold, if you hit that, the production check gets shut down. So it makes it very, very untenable. Uh, we are just at a complete loss, really, as to how to handle this. I know several people who shot films, and this was before, even before Omicron that got shut down. And it, it's really, really difficult to deal with if economically and from a scheduling perspective. And, and here, when you're dealing with a rock tour, as you were just saying, what happens is key members of the crew if they have to go into isolation, uh, you literally could have the production unable to do what they need to do. Or even worse, they're sitting in Amsterdam two hours before a show and, and their COVID compliance officer comes into the room and says to Landau, Max, Gary and Roy just tested positive. They can't go on stage. It, it's, it's just it's a massive logistical problem at the moment. And it's easy to understand, certainly, why they got rid of Europe. The U.S. being so far out, it would have been great if we had some kind of hope and, and perhaps it still exists. But as I said, as, as far as we know now, all dates for the year have been removed. <laughs> well, yes, and that is that's unfortunate, but it's totally understandable. And I guess you can come up with the argument that, well, it's X number of months in advance. We don't know what's going to happen. And, and it's true of the last two summers, the summer of 20 and summer of 21, the numbers were, I mean, they were minuscule compared to what they are now. So you could think, yeah, they could play some outdoor shows in, uh, in August in the States, but that doesn't seem to be the, seem to be the situation. Doesn't seem to be what's going to be happening. And I guess we just, <laughs> another year of, uh, of looking forward to another year of no shows rather. Certainly touring is happening. 
the war on drugs just announced, and I'm supposed to see them next month. They are moving forward. They did eliminate their opening act. They are taking special precautions, but they are planning on playing the shows. Jason Isbell has been touring for months now, except he just announced today he's COVID positive. So they Mm -hmm. canceled the next five shows. Really, from an economic standpoint, I think it is very challenging for Bruce with these big stadium shows in Europe. If four or five of them suddenly get wiped out and they can't be rescheduled, I I don't know that the tour works economically for them. It's a real challenge. So let's just hope things get better. (laughs) We've been hoping that for two years now. But but yeah, I also see see that uh, it would be a, a much more logistical nightmare to to have it to have shows scheduled to have tickets sold, to have the whole itinerary set. And then all of a sudden, yeah, now we got to cancel these four or five shows. And then, to, you know, as you said, the reschedule and refunds and ticketing. And I mean, more, that'd be more of a hassle for fans. And I think not, not going through with it in, in the first place. Well, I think on that, it's hard to say. Pearl Jam obviously has dates from March of 2020 that haven't been played yet. And in fact, they're supposed to be in May, but they haven't announced them probably because of this situation. And I think fans are willing to put up with a lot. Now, and the thing you have with a Pearl Jam tour that also applies with the Springsteen tour, you have a lot of traveling fans. So you also have to wonder if these acts want to put fans in that position. Fans could get trapped in quarantine in a strange country. And you're basically encouraging people to travel. So I, I would think that could also be a factor. But as we say at the moment, unfortunately, you know, <laughs> we no wait some more. <laughs> That's okay. We're used to waiting. Remember back in 89 and 90 and 91, Hal? That is true, but it's so different now. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't I trapped in my house in, the, in 1989. <laughs> That's true. That's true. But hey, it, it, uh, this does mean, no tour does mean that the, uh, the archive series is going to continue unabated and we'll get 12 new releases this year. And we already got the first one. And it was a damn good one. Yes, it was uh, really enjoying listening it the, the last few days. I mean, that uh, the sound is phenomenal. And of course it's a, it's a great set list. It really is. You got three tracks. If you include stand on it as a track, you got an East street debut of some 92 material. You got a reworked version of an East street classic. Well, album or, Album classic, anyway, and then uh, you got that that out of nowhere cover. And I was at the show. I wrote the review for Backstreets, which was fun. This was a really cool night, and really the release stands as a testament because this is a show that nobody has really ever talked about from the reunion tour. It, it's in the middle of that run where Hartford took place, and then you had the debuts in Atlanta. And and Vegas was there, and and nobody ever really talked about Anaheim. And I made this point in my review. These two months of touring were certainly the best run of shows I've seen in the reunion era. Even as I remember it, they were on fire every night. And, and I think you feel the same way, right? Oh, yes. Yes, I do. They were at such a consistently high level, night after night after night. And... And you're right. This show does did kind of get lost between Hartford and then Atlanta, and then of course the ten nights at the Garden. And and I come back to my to my point that the recording, this recording, just shows how great they were, even at a show that that did get overlooked. Yeah, it's a great show. Just because you didn't have a great recording of it before doesn't mean it wasn't great. Now there was a, a pretty good IEM mix of it, but uh, even the best IEM mixes are not going to 
they're still going to pale in comparison to a, to an official release. I'll say it's more than just a recording because, of course, this was a show I was at. Now, you and I saw a huge number of shows that spring. And until I went back and listened to the show when they released it on Friday and also I'm prepping for the review, I, I did listen to the audience recording. From the moment they kick in here with Take Them As They Come, I mean, this is a band that is just a driving force. And it just it really does stand uh, the the songs that were played throughout the reunion tour here are just phenomenal and and then you get these unusual setlist choices that he was doing roll the dice which was obviously prepped for vegas the next show and the country version of no surrender which was only played a handful of times and racing the street which makes its first appearance from the reunion tour in the archive series and then the unusual encores it really the show really stands up as big and it, it as you were just saying I, this is an every night they were just consistently great and i'm not saying that that hasn't been the case at other points in the reunion era but you listen to every aspect here the max's drumming and and clarence and and bruce's vocals let there not be any misunderstanding <laughs> that the, the people who've claimed for years listening mainly on tape that Bruce's vocals on the reunion tour, that there was something wrong with them. Uh, that is shattered with this release as well as the garden releases. Well, I, I never even thought that for a second. Um, you know, we saw a bunch of shows on that tour and I never once walked out of a show going, man, his voice didn't sound very good. No, no, it sounded freaking amazing every, every, every night. And I guess you, there was some, some basis for criticism of the twang during, during something like Thunder Road, but yeah, that's a, that's about it. <laughs> and I was really, really digging uh, Danny's contributions uh, earlier today, especially on Take Them As They Come, that swirling organ in the in the left channel. Just, man, he was on fire on that tour. Yeah. <laughs> and, and since it's Clarence's birthday, I mean, to point out the roll of the dice, which is augmented by an extended sax break in this first time that they were ever playing it. How good is that? I, yeah. I mean, you listen to it and you're just like, holy crap, this is amazing, amazing stuff. And the racing in the street also, the, the mm -hmm. code at the end, mm -hmm. I, I've always felt the reunion tour versions of racing in the street were pretty much as good as any versions that th there ever were. And there's just, th this is just a show of highlights. And, and it again, it just goes to show, this is a show that was never considered really a top shelf show. And, and if you're comparing it to the other shows that took place in those months, it, it nobody's going to say this is a better show than May 8th in Hartford. It was not. We, we both witnessed May 8th and, and I, of course, witnessed this show. It was certainly not a better show than the accounts we've heard from Atlanta. There were shows at the Garden that I was there for the final six shows, certainly that were better than this show. But that doesn't matter because this show standing on its own was freaking awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's time that they go ahead and re re release every show that they have from uh, from those two months on tape, and uh, we can we can listen to each one and really delve into the the specifics as to which was better, which which night was which night was better. So, <laughs> well, but, sadly, you know, as you've already reported, they don't yeah. have Hartford and they don't have Atlanta. I don't they know don't, what else they have. They don't have Vegas, so we're kind of... Oh, they don't have Vegas either. No, so I think uh, this might be it, except for the garden. Uh, oh, so that's good info. So basically, 
in May and June, and of course, including July 1st, which has already been released, you believe they don't have anything else except for Anaheim and the Garden. Uh, we know they don't have Hartford and, and Atlanta, and you just said they don't have Vegas. The only other show is <laughs> Salt Lake City. Yeah, that sounds about right. Okay, well. <laughs> all right, that's not much, I guess, but. Uh, well, we're hey, glad about this one. Release all 10 nights of the Garden. That's all I can say. Yeah, well, can you confirm they have all 10 nights? Uh, I don't know about that. Okay, well, I just figured we'd get some news here. I don't know. Hey, I, I, I just gave you I gave you something they don't have. Does that count? Yes. <laughs> but I want to go back to your comment on, on, on racing in the street. It's it's not usually a song that you associate with thunderous drums from, from Max, but this one has it. It was such a – you're right. The coda is just breathtaking, and Max's drumming's really – Max's drumming really stood out to me today, and yeah, beautiful version. And it's I'm I'm thankful that uh, it's finally been included from the from the reunion tour here. That was a glaring thing to be missing, to be sure. And well, you know, but on the other hand, they you know they gave us uh, what a couple of incidents, a couple of serenades, so um, a couple of jungle lands. So we, it's kind of hard to complain too much there. Now, the other thing to discuss in the show is the impromptu version of Gloria, which to this day, 22 years later, I still have no idea where it came from. At that point, very often after Land of Hope and Dreams, he would do his shtick with the crowd and, and would go into Ramrod. And certainly that was what we were expecting on this night. And, and suddenly he picked up his guitar and there was driving drums and, and, and they were playing them's <laughs> Gloria. Well, what was interesting was uh, not only did they do the usual shtick, but then he went one more for Anaheim. And that's when you expect to hear the opening riff to Ramrod. But it went into the opening riff from Gloria. So, yeah, that's that was out of left field. And it was big time fun. I, I remember it to this day. I mean, that was that was really a fun moment. And, and, and that's where these three bands shines in these impromptu moments where they're playing a rock classic and you wouldn't expect to hear. And. In many ways, it prefaces the sign error that would come up, even though this wasn't a request as far as we know. But but the one thing here was they were so tight, as we know, some of the requests were better than others in terms of the eventual performance. They were so tight. I mean, listen to the performance of Gloria here. It, it It's totally out of control. Well, I was going to say it was, it was a lot more organic than uh, than the 2009 Stump the Band sign its stuff. Um, you know, a lot of that, a lot of those were obviously forced. They were, they were signing requests. And this one, it just came out of Bruce's psyche somewhere, somewhere in Bruce's subconscious. He said, I'm doing Gloria or maybe not even subconscious. And he just ripped into it. And man, that was fun. As you said, I mean, I wasn't there, but I was, uh, had a big smile on my face listening to it in the car this morning. Oh yeah. It's a great listen. And, and the ramrod is fun to end the night and, Again, just a, just a great show for them to release, and hopefully there will be some more from the reunion tour. I, I, my guess would be next one they'll go back to '99. You would think uh, that would be my guess. I mean, they gotta they gotta hit the Jersey stand at some point. Do we know if they have anything from Jersey? I think they do. I don't know which nights. I don't know if okay. they have all fifteen or if they have one or I don't know what they have. Well, I mean, but hell, if they if they if they recorded Anaheim and if, and if they recorded Chicago, surely they did New Jersey. I said to someone else the other day, if you assume anything in this world, all we have to do is point out that they didn't record his 50th birthday, a one-off performance at the Spectrum. And well, that was a one-off performance and not 15 nights, so it's a little different. That is true. 
<laughs> but still, you would have thought that that would have been recorded. Well, yeah, but they had to, uh, you know, they basically had one day to move everything. Well, they had two days to move everything into the spectrum, and then they had one day to move it out for the next night at the back at the other arena, whatever it was called. First Union. Um, First Union, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I guess the, that one truck didn't get moved in those, uh, in those few days. All right. Well, at least we have nine twenty-five ninety-nine. <laughs> That's true. That's true. And, and hey, and all, and all the songs that were all the unique songs done at the, the at the at the Spectrum show, they, they've been released. It's just just not from this show, but from other ones. They have. Are you talking? They were released from the reunion tour because the one that comes to mind immediately is is the Fever. That was certainly not released from the reunion tour. No, it wasn't. But it was released in two thousand sixteen. When it was uh, when it was also done in Philadelphia at the at the first show in, in on September seventh, uh, two thousand sixteen. That's true. So I'll give you that one. <laughs> Thank you. What's up, everyone? It's Joe, and I'm the host of That's Awesome with Joe, a podcast on the newly formed Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. I talk with tons of your favorite artists, managers, touring personnel, and more. Most of the time we talk about music, but lots of the time we end up talking about something completely unrelated. We laugh a lot. We do a lot of really stupid things, but also some things that are really informative and interesting. Basically, it's a podcast that I think you should listen to. Obviously, I'm biased because it's my podcast, but I think I might be into it if I wasn't the host. Check it out at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotis, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, yeah. right? And, yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? <laughs> the Bigfoot thing is people have seen these, and, and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Tripodis. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. All right. Well, we have a guest tonight, and I think she's going to be very, very informative on what happened that second night of No Nukes when Bruce was turning 30. And with that, Flynn, would you like to introduce her? Our guest tonight is Joyce Millman. She wrote the, the Backstreets.com review for, for the No Nukes film. And she's a longtime music and TV critic. And Joyce, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Good to be here. Thank you for joining us, Joyce. Yeah. So you were lucky enough to be at the no, at, at one of the No Nuke shows. Yes. I and, was uh, the birthday show. Okay, so that was the 22nd. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how did you, um, c- can you explain a bit of your fandom prior to, to those two shows? <laughs> I saw my first show um, early in the Darkness tour. So that was uh, May of 78 in Boston. Okay. So, I mean, I knew who he was before then, um, you know, because he got played a lot on Boston radio, like the first two albums. And then Born to Run came out. You know, I kind of, I knew it, but like I wasn't, 
I don't know where my head was at. I wasn't really listening. I wasn't ready, but um, kind of, so I kind of missed the boat on the, on the, all the great early Bruce shows in Boston. Okay. Uh, and I, you know, in college I started, you know, everybody, all the, all the, the kids from, uh, from Philly and Long Island and New York and, you know, they were all really, you know, Bruce, Bruce, Bruce. So I started to pay attention. And by the time the darkness tour came, I, you know, I was ready, you know, I was, I was primed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that's where I came in, you know, darkness 78. That was, that was my, you know that was the way in for me and and like that album that was that's still my favorite bruce album and it's one of my favorite albums and it just got me thinking about how to you know how to write about music in a meaningful way so that kind of started you know i i i was i was still in college and it kind of got me on a path to writing about music um with that album so yeah i came in in 78 okay so you're already a big fan after darkness and now you're getting to see no nukes which of course is taking place between tours i read the backstreets piece and you really wrote about it beautifully can you give us a little color of that night what it felt like to be there on september 22nd 1979 um well i was i was with holly cara and um some other some other women that I really can't remember who and I feel terrible but you know we were all of us ready um there was a definite you know real buzz in that place uh, because it you know he he was going to go on last uh the shows you know they were five hours long so he was going to be on stage when it turned midnight and it would be his birthday so it was like you know the anticipation that something you know something big was going to happen something cool we didn't know what it was going to be but oh boy it's his birthday so this is going to be a special show and um you know we it was it was kind of un it was unfair to the other performers because this was a bruce crowd um, and it wasn't like, you know, people were sitting there politely listening to <laughs> Gil Scott Heron and Peter Tosh. And, and that's, I feel so bad about that now. Um, but you know, they were, it, it was, I don't want to say disrespectful, but people wanted to see Bruce. They were there for Bruce. It was, these shows were the only sellouts. So it was like, you know, and as the hours ticked by, <laughs> Um, I think he came on stage at 11.45, and we'd been there for hours, you know. Um, it, it was crazy. It was crazy. Poor Tom Petty, I think he was the act be- to go on before Bruce. Um, he was not he, pleased, that is for sure. He was not pleased. I mean, he shouldn't. And, uh, yeah, I don't blame him. I mean, it, it was just constant Bruce, you know, Bruce. Um, so yeah, this was an audience, this was a Madison Square Garden filled with Bruce fans, just could not contain ourselves. (laughs) 
Um, what, yeah. Can we back? Can I back up a little bit? Did what kind of expectations did you have for the shows or the show, like prior to walking into the arena? Um. Well. Maybe you didn't I, have any. It's it's okay. <laughs> no, no, I, I. I won't lie to you. I wanted to see Bruce, and you know, yeah, I, I love Bonnie Raitt. I, I, you know, I love Tom Petty, and and you know, we we listened. My group listened. You know, we we were kind of into it, but we were there for Bruce. I wanted to see Bruce so badly. It had been so long. It had been a whole year, <laughs> um, and it was his birthday. And I thought he's going to blow the roof off. And you know, I, I'm in New York for the first time. This is, you know, this is great. This is just this is going to be so great. Um, that so that's where my head was at. That's what my expectation was that it was going to be a wild night well i definitely think your expectations were met that night and tell us a little more it's 11 45 the wait is over bruce takes the stage set the scene for us we also had pretty crummy seats we were like in we were side stage like up in the balcony so um you know really you know we we couldn't and there were no um you know, big screens at the time. There were, you know, arenas, all the arenas have big screens now. There were no screens. So we couldn't really see his his expressions unless he turned, you know, turned around to us, um, which was a bummer. But um, as, as it got going, you know, it was like, oh, okay, prove it all night. That's, these are my favorite songs. And, and you know, it, it kind of, it kind of started, it started to feel like, oh, it, this is going to be a, you know, a darkness show again. But then it kind of took that swerve into the river. And um, he, you know, it had, oh, no, first the birthday. Right. First it turned midnight. And um, that was, um, th that was weird. <laughs> you wrote about the cake incident. It, that yeah. must have seemed really strange. That way, it did seem strange because it it just this wasn't him, and you know this was just so out of left field that um, somebody hands him a cake and he throws it into the audience, and who knows where it landed? I mean, it probably landed on somebody, you know. Um, and we were just kind of looking at each other like, oh what is going on with him? And um, I don't think it, at the time we, you know, we, we knew, um, and we, we still don't, but there were, you know, I, I read something uh, recently that, you know, somebody who was there said, oh, he was having a really hard time with turning 30. So, you know, he was acting out a little, I think. Um, but yeah, that was just, uh, I can't even tell you how weird, it was a weird, disappointing kind of scene, you know, when he, when he did that, he really seemed kind of bratty and he, and he isn't bratty. Um, so that was like a, that was an odd side of him, but then he kind of shut down, you know, everybody wanted to sing happy birthday and he just really wasn't having it and shut it down and then went into the river and 
you know, looking back on that, it's just mind blowing that it was like, that was such like an almost uncontrolled scene. And then he just took control of it instantly with, you know, the harmonica comes out and he starts, you know, this song that nobody has heard before. It was just really, you know, it was bold of him. And it just, I think it shows now at the time, I can't say that I really understood what was happening, but he really was, you know, showing that he had, he really had the control of his, of, of his arena crowd, you know, and I think that's something he had, he had to, you know, to test if he could control the, you know, this, and he, and he did because it was silent in there during the river. Considering how crazy people were, you know, all night, it was, it was just silent, you know, just listening to the words of the, of this song that was just so different from anything we've heard from him before. And it, it was just, I mean, it was, it was stunning. It was, you know, it knocked the wind out of us to hear, to hear those lyrics. So did that raise your expectations for the for the new album? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's you know I didn't I don't I thought that I didn't know what I thought was going to happen with it. It was it going was it going to was the whole album going to be you know this kind of you know this very deep folk folk stuff that he sort of started to get into with darkness. Um, but then, then right after the river, he started Sherry Darling. So that, you know, that was, um, the polar opposite. So, um, we just had no idea like what, what was coming with the river and, you know, we didn't know it was going to be, you know, um, as long as it is and, and all that. It was just like, wow, he's kind of all over the map. This is good. <laughs> <laughs> well, you talked about the brattiness. Well, let's can we talk about the the Lynn Goldsmith incident? Yeah. You um you oh. said it was fortunately fortunately not included in the film. What do yeah. you what do you recall from that? Oh, um, oh boy, uh, it was ugly. You know, it was weird and ugly. Um, and I mean, the concert was going all. You know, he had kind of gotten over that that weirdness with the cake and you know he was he was blowing the roof off and and then all of a sudden it just goes down in the audience and and you know i mean everybody from where we were we we could actually from our vantage point uh we could see you know that he was oh he's he's pulling a woman up on stage so we had like a really good view looking down on that and um we didn't know who it was, but, and I think people thought, oh yeah, this is nice. He's bringing a girl for a girl, his girlfriend up or whatever. And then, and I, I think that the, I think Lynn, Lynn Goldsmith must've been turned toward us. Cause I remember her expression really clearly. She just, he had her by the elbow or something, pulls her on stage and, 
I I think she had this like look on her face like she was tr- she was like sort of trying to smile and she didn't know what was coming and making the best of it or whatever. And then when he said this, my ex girlfriend, she just she tried to pull her arm away and it, it was just it was not good. It was ugly and we kind of just went ew no wow. why why um, yeah it was I'm yeah I'm glad that film of that has kind of I guess been buried in a hole or burned or destroyed yeah. or something um, they, they couldn't have put that in I mean some people were, were upset because it it was documented but sure. I, I just think especially 40 years later not only for him but for her I mean it's it, it wouldn't have been appropriate yes and they you know they did they did smooth it over and, and you know and so if they're they're past it, then why do we need to bring it up again? Um, I get that where people are coming from that, oh, well, why, you know, for the sake of completeness, why is this out, you know? But it just, um, it really, it it took away from the momentum of the moment of, you know, of the show. Um, And, you know, it, it works, the film works because it's not in there. Because it's just like you're building and building and building up to that amazing finish, you know. And I think it was during quarter to three that he did that. Um, And so, yeah, you know, you don't need it. There also wouldn't have been context for it, really. I don't don't think most of the Mm -hmm. audience would have known exactly what was going on there. And there's no defending his behavior. But if you think about it now, 40 years later, the guy was having a meltdown because he turned 30 and he felt like things were slipping away. Isn't that funny? We just saw him the other night at 72. 72, yeah, like 30. Oh, I'm over the hill. And, but you know, in the context of the times, I don't think people, younger people today really, you know, understand what, what that meant. But, you know... When you grew up during the 60s and the 70s, you know, it was 30 was like, forget it. That's it. Your life is over, Um, which is ridiculous to think (laughs) of now. But, you know, and he was a a child of the 60s and 70s and there was still, you know, that was still kind of in people's consciousness that 30 was the end. Um, So, yeah, but... (laughs) It is it is funny now that, you know, 40 years later. How does how did the how did the film measure up to your memory? I know you touched a, touched upon that a bit well, in, in, in your Backstreet's piece. Well, I was really grateful to have that film because, you know, my memory. I mean, I'm not I've never, t- you know, kept a diary, so I didn't like come you know, come out of there and immediately write everything down. Um, and there were, of course, there were no cell phones or anything to document it. So it was just in my in my memory, which, you know, your memory fades. So when I saw the film, it pieces of that night started to come come back to me. So I was really grateful to have that, you know, to just be able to watch that you know, again, and it kind of like transported me back to where, you know, where I was in my life at that, at that point, like, oh, I get to see this again. 
um, from, uh, you know, this perspective where I'm not like overwhelmed in the moment, I can just watch it and really see what happened. Um, so it just, it, it, it gave those memories back to me. And I'm sure a lot, it, it did that for a lot of people. I thought what you wrote was was very poignant at the end of the piece about how it was really sort of an emotional jumble to watch. Of course, you were with Holly, who unfortunately is no longer with us. And then there on the screen, Danny is gone and Clarence is gone. I, when I watched it for the first time, it, that really struck me to see Clarence and Danny in at their biggest uh, moments at you know as 30 year olds i think clarence was a little bit older because bruce would have, was 30 so he would have been in his late 30s but to see them with the force and and the entire band it's it's really a wonder to see they yes um they were just they were an overwhelming band i think the just like the and you know they they, they were playing so when you look back at those that era those old older you know shows the tempos are so much faster on the songs you know but <laughs> they were really jamming them out and um it was like i said this i think i wrote ab about seeing bruce at the at the garden from up from at the boston garden on the darkness tour from from down front it's like standing in the middle of a hurricane i mean it is is just overwhelming the, the you know just to see the musicianship like up close but also just the the emotion and the the they were just so attuned as a unit it's it's just amazing and you forget how just how badass clarence you know in his Prime and his his you know those suits that he had on and in, in you know the, both both nights of the Muse show and you see a little bit of that splendor you know like the the white the white suit and the the red one and the hat I mean it's 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 just it's a beautiful thing to have that you know to be able to, to be able to see that again that band in in its prime. Now, you did say you didn't document it or there wasn't much documentation going on. Um, but you, you did write a review. You, you, I you wrote said, a review, yes, I wrote a review for it was. Yeah, it was a free music paper that used to get at the strawberries music you know, store. Um, and it was. Yeah, I, I, I reviewed it. <laughs> and my, my little 22 year old self reviewed that for for this. Um, Free music rags. So that's kind of I guess I did document it. Yeah. There's there's a, a link to it from the from the backstreets yeah. or your backstreets piece to your uh, to your to your wordpress.com site. Yeah. The um the writing's not the, the writing's not great, but you know what can I say? I was a kid. But <laughs> yeah, I was and when I went back and read it, I was really surprised at how much information I did manage to get in there considering that I was, you know, I was out of my mind, you know, watching Bruce and trying to take notes, but really up there screaming, you know. Well, we we appreciate you coming on and and sharing with us. You know, Hal and I are a little bit a little bit too young to have seen him in '79, so 
Um, uh, we, we love hearing directly from people who, who, were, who were there. Oh, it was my pleasure. Glad I could share it with you. Oh, thank you so much, Joyce. We, we really do appreciate it. Again, that was Joyce Millman. She uh, she wrote the review of the No Nukes film for the Backstreet's website, and she's a a writer and reporter by by trade. And uh, it's always good to get uh, additional insight in, into the show, especially we hadn't talked about the Lynn Goldsmith incident yet. That is 100% true. And just so funny to think about, as I was saying when Joyce was on, that he was melting down like that because he was turning 30. I, I'd love, we'll of course <laughs> never hear from him on that topic for sure, but it would be really fascinating to know what he thinks about that now, considering he's 72 and still rocking. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that would be a good question to ask him. I mean, he's, he's going to go until the day drops, obviously. Yeah. So turning 30 <laughs> really wasn't that big of a deal after all. No, and we should all remember that. <laughs> really, any ages like that. So, and do we have a special guest? Have you arranged someone for us tonight? Yes, we do. Uh, we found someone who... Uh, did you have to look very far? I did not have to look very far. I just had to look across the room. Ken Rosenthal is not the only person we're going to talk to about No Nukes being in their first show. We also have Claudine. Claudine, your lovely wife, who I met on August 4th, 1992 at a Springsteen show. At the Meadowlands. That is correct. Now, going back to the No Nuke shows, uh, there were two nights. Claudine, do you remember which night you attended? I do. I went to the first night, which was the first night of Rosh Hashanah. So was that a problem for you, the fact that it was the first night of Rosh Hashanah? It was a major problem for me. I grew up with parents who were Holocaust survivors, and um, Rosh Hashanah was a very big holiday. And my mom's side of the family was more orthodox than we were. And when I told her that I had tickets for a concert that night, she said, there is no way in hell I am going. <laughs> so I had to think quickly. And I said to my mom, I changed Bruce's name a little bit. And I said, mom, his name is Bruce Springstein. He's German. He's Jewish. If his mother's letting him play, how could you not let me go? And she looked at me a little bit dumbfounded and she couldn't say no. She said, OK, go. Just don't tell your aunts where you are. And I said, OK. And off I went. And <laughs> it changed my life. It was the first show that I saw. It made me want more and more. And I couldn't stop. And because of this night on one of the highest holy Jewish holidays, I've met some of my best friends, my husband. And I've had a podcast a, host. And, <laughs> <laughs> who's a podcast host? And there are two of us, yes. Yes. And you, I met you back in 92, which was another monumental night for me. And of course, for you, since. We've spoken to each other every single day since then, bar none. Um, so I'm grateful to Bruce for bringing my life together like this because it would have never happened. Well, it's a wonderful thing. And when you went back home after this and, and you obviously got out on Rosh Hashanah, when you went back home, what were you saying to yourself just beyond I got to see more of that? I never felt so energized, so involved in a show that I just felt that I needed to see this again. And 
once the river tour started, I it just exploded and I kept going. And I've met tons of people along the way and my life changed. It, it totally t- went a different turn. My friends were not into Bruce. They were into disco. I hated it. My other friends were into heavy metal. So I kind of made a niche for myself and let this journey take me where it took me today. And 40 years later, I'm still doing the same thing and loving every minute of it. And we hope to do it again at some point in the future. Yeah. That is true. It is interesting to think about how how much our lives have been affected or influenced by by this one man and his music. And I, I want to know if, if he understands what he has done in that regard for, for so many people. And I mean, obviously me included and, and the two of you, it's just, if there's one thing we want to tell him is, is how much that his, his art, his career has, has affected us. It's interesting because I do think he probably knows it. I, my guess is he tries not to think about it regularly only because it is such a sort of a mind blowing thing to think that you could be the vector to, to all these people being friends and having relationships. And it's really an amazing thing. If, if you think about it, even think of the spring nuts group and, and all those people. And we know that they know about that group. It, it would be interesting to get his thoughts on that. But I, my guess is on a day to day basis, it, that's not really something that's on his mind. <laughs> yeah, probably not. That'd be kind of overwhelming to think that if I hadn't written born to run, then this kid over here never would have been born. There is that situation in a number of families. Definitely. Claudine, do you have anything else you'd like to add for the audience this first time that you're on? It's been a wonderful experience, and maybe one day I'll do it again. I think everyone would welcome that. <laughs> what, a, what, appearing on the podcast or seeing Bruce in concert? Yes, <laughs> both. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for, for taking time out to, to join us tonight. Thanks for having me. Oh, that was a blast. Thanks, Claudine. Thanks, Hal. Well, that was fun. It's not every day we get uh, we get to have my wife come on and talk about her Bruce experiences. We've been looking for a chance to have her on in, in some capacity and to have her talk about her first show. That was that that was a lot of fun. Yeah, it really was, and I'm glad we did that. And uh, just trying to be hopeful here. Maybe the three of us will see a show together sometime soon. Not really sure soon would be the right word at this point no, but <laughs> I, i'm just it was what came to mind i'm trying to be hopeful here <laughs> for what are we without hope in our hearts <laughs> i think that's now two episodes that you've used that <laughs> well that's right, okay well, we, we, we need it we need it yes all right well let let's get to the end here uh that i think that's completes our episode pretty damn well so i'll, I'll just go to our spiel none but the bravest presentation of bull market entertainment and a part of evergreen podcasts if you want to reach out and talk to us find us on twitter at nbtb podcast and on the web we're at none but the brave podcast.com so for, for hal schwartz on flynn mclean saying thanks for listening and thanks to our guests tonight joyce millman and my lovely wife claudine gruen and um we'll see you both around up the room thank you so much We'll be seeing you. Hey, this is Mike Wiebe, and I'm the singer in a band called The Riverboat Gamblers. And I'm Zach Blair. I play guitar in a band called Rise Against. Mike and I also have a band called The Draculas, and we also have this great, amazing new podcast called Zach and Mike Make Three. 
Yeah, each week we're going to ask ourselves and we're going to ask our guests what three favorite things they are into at that moment or in their entire lives. And then we're either going to agree with them or we're going to make fun of them. And uh, you're going to listen to it and you're going to like it or we will make fun of you. How about that? I just flipped it on you, the person listening to this right now. But we're going to do it every week here on the Sound Talent Network. Once again, it's called Zach and Mike Make Three. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.